Uh, let's go ahead and pray. We're, we're starting in on our new quarter. Some of the um, classes are going to review. They're doing like Jeopardy games and stuff like that. I was trying to figure out how we were going to play Jeopardy, but I just figured we'll just move into the next quarter. We'll start lesson one. But let's go ahead and, and pray. Lord, thank you so much for just a beautiful morning to study your word. We ask that you'd fill us with your spirit. Uh, thank you that just for the things that you've taught us uh, as we've been studying, uh, just the Pentateuch. Thank you so much for the blessing of hearing from Pastor Milton last week, just on Genesis 4. Uh, we just pray that you guide us and help us to grow by your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, so one of the questions we're going to try to address today is who is our perfect example of obedience? You guys know the Sunday school answer? Jesus. Yeah, so it's Jesus. <clears throat> we'll talk about why that is. And um, let's just review our purpose for the adult equipping school. We haven't talked about this in a while. Our adult uh, Sunday school, I'm actually trying to get used to saying adult Sunday school, is a para-family ministry designed to come alongside of our families in their journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're not trying to replace what your guys are doing. In fact, parents are the primary disciples of their kids, but we just want to come alongside and hope you guys are able to take advantage. And so the new quarter that we're moving into is uh, called obedience and disobedience. So we're going to be studying judges, I mean, Joshua, Judges, and then we're going to actually move into a little bit of First uh, Samuel uh, over the next 13 weeks. So we're very excited about the material. This, again, it fits within the whole uh, sequence of our curriculum um, that we're actually taking four years to go through, but it's the seven seas of history. We spent time uh, talking about the one on the left, which anybody remember what that means? The left icon? Creation. And then what's the next one? Anybody remember? Corruption. And then catastrophe. So that's where we dealt with the flood. And the fourth one? Confusion. Okay, and that's really the confusion one is a big part of what's going on during this time of redemptive history. And um, especially when we get to that starts the Tower of Babel, but we'll see it in the book of Judges. We'll see it in the divided kingdom. We'll see it in the exile. And things like that. <clears throat> so in this particular quarter, uh, this is kind of an overview of what we're going to cover. We're going to be introducing Joshua today, at least Joshua as leader of Israel. Then we'll be talking about Rahab, Battle of Jericho, um, the disobedience of Israel and the book of Judges particularly. We'll talk about Gideon, God's faithfulness. Um, we'll be talking about Ruth, Samuel. Uh, we'll be talking about David. Um, Saul, and then, I don't know, maybe you guys can help me do a Jeopardy review at the end of this quarter. If anyone wants to help me. <laughs> exactly. You got it down, man. Great job. All right, so we're going to be talking about God calling Joshua. Let's do a little bit of, uh, of review of what we covered up to this point. Um, we've covered three, actually four different quarters now of material. And the big idea is, is we've studied Genesis through the uh, creation of the universe, earth, and all its creatures, including mankind, all the way to the exodus of the Israelites as slaves. That's kind of the big idea of what we've covered. We've, we've basically covered the Pentateuch. Um, so I'm going to come back to this in just a second. Um, we hit here recently, the Israelites failed to trust God. Um, <clears throat> that God would lead them out of the promised land. And so we've got this 40 years of wondering. We've got people dying that are 20 years and older. The younger generation is going to go in and take the land uh, according to Abrahamic promise. Let's ask a couple questions. Uh, why is Joshua allowed to enter the promised land? Larry? Awesome. So we've got Joshua and Caleb. These guys are the two. We know their names. Can anybody remember any of the other ten that we talked about last week? No, I mean the other ones. Yeah, the, the bad guys. I can't even remember their names. I just studied it last week. 
so that shows you what happens when you go down in infamy, right? Um, so let's see here. Um, from whom was Joshua taking? Oh, I had edited that. I don't know what happened. Um, from whom was Joshua taking the reins of leadership? Moses. That's where we're going to be kicking in this morning. So it passes from Moses to Joshua. And uh, jo- Moses had been the servant. Now Joshua is, is stepping into his place to lead Israel. Um, let's, once you guys open up to Joshua chapter 1, as you do so, um, I'm going to remind you of a couple other things that we <clears throat> didn't cover via our curriculum. Okay, so you have creation. You have God making this. Um, you know the the people the people of the earth. Adam and Eve rebel. Uh, but then God has grace upon Adam and Eve. Cain rebels. God has grace on Cain. Um, and then the whole earth begins to be filled with violence. God promises that he's going to destroy the earth, but he raises up Noah and his family. He has grace on Noah and his family, but he ends up destroying the whole world via flood. Eight people come off of the ark, as you guys remember, <clears throat> and then they're told to go out and multiply and um, they don't completely go out and spread out. And so eventually we get to the Tower of Babel. It's so we're not talking of too many generations before you already have people that are worshiping either an alternative version of Yahweh or a marred version or a completely different God. Um, and so God spreads the people out again. He has grace and judgment. And so we see the people getting spread out. And then he focuses attention on Abraham. We have this Abrahamic promise that's made, which involves land, seed, and blessing, right? Land, seed, and blessing. And um, and so Abraham goes out, and that blessing is transferred to Isaac, which is transferred to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and those 12 sons are all really righteous guys, right? No, we have some guys that are just not all that admirable, but they're underneath this covenant, and um, and so you have rising up of Joseph. You have Joseph sent up into the land, into Egypt. Joseph ended up saving the people of God. And uh, then they're being brought out of the land by a great and mighty hand of the Lord. We've got the pillar. We've got the clouds. Um, we have the, the Ten Commandments that are given. Eventually, the people rebel. God promises that they're going to fall in the wilderness before they take the land. What we did not cover is... And the fact that there comes a day when it is that all of the people had died. And now we're left with what we call the second generation of Israel. Um, those that survive beyond the young ones are Moses uh, and his wife. And you have Aaron and, and Miriam. And then you have uh, Joshua and Caleb. Right. Um, so then you come to this period that is called Deuteronomy. Why do we call it Deuteronomy? What is Deutero? Second, what is Namas? Anybody know? Say it again. Not close. That's that's a good guess. Namas, law. It's the second giving of the law. So Leviticus. You know, sometimes you read Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and you're like, man, these so much of this stuff overlaps. Well, Leviticus is the law given to the first generation. Uh, but the, the first generation dies off. And so Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. It's reminders of everything that was getting in Leviticus. And it's reminders to this new generation that's about ready to go in, cross the Jordan and take the land. And so that's why there seems to be a lot of overlap. Uh, but there's also some new information. And so that's we didn't really get into a whole lot of Deuteronomy. But basically that whole book happens in a fairly short period of time. And it's just the second giving of the law to um, God's people before they go over and take the land. And so that's what that's uh, what brings us to the book of Joshua. So in moving into Joshua, we've now moved in to a different section of Scripture. We're now leaving the Torah or the Pentateuch behind the first five books of the Bible. And we're moving into historical or, you know, some of the prophetic 
um, narrative. In the Jewish division of the Old Testament, you have the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so Joshua would fit into the what would be called the prophets. All right? And so that's kind of... Um, kind of where we're moving with this. So let's go ahead and and let's do some reading here in the very first part of Joshua. Uh, I'm going to start right there in verse 1. We'll read to about verse 9. I'm reading from a New King James, by the way. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go over the Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. From the wilderness of this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea uh, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance, the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you in whatever in, in wherever you go. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask a few questions of the text before we um, make some applications. When is this taking place? What is the, uh, the time context? Yep. So Moses has died. And so Joshua is getting direct divine revelation. It'd be easy for us to think that this just happens all the time uh, because we're reading about it in the Bible. But it seems if we're if we're going to apply the full context, when God spoke to Moses directly on Mount Sinai. Um, how did the people react to God's speaking and thunderings and revelation? Say it again. Yeah, they were in abject fear. Um, they were very content. They say, Moses, you go talk to God. We will stay away from the mountain lest we what? Die. They're afraid of dying. So there's this real sense of holiness and separation that they aren't really wanting to be in the business of receiving direct divine revelation because there's this sense that they will not survive it. And so Moses while he did speak to Adam and Eve in the garden, and we even see him speaking directly to Cain in the garden, as redemptive history moves forward, there seems to be this distancing where God is choosing to speak through various prophets. Um, and while this is mysterious to us, it's, it seems to be for the protection of the people. That God's holiness is so... Um, amazing that his holiness will cause the death of sinners who do not come to him through a mediator uh, who is speaking to whom in this context God speaking to Joshua 
This is, you know, it's a very straightforward question, but you don't know how many times I've had family devotions where we read the text and I just ask our kids, okay, who's talking? Uh, Jesus? Like, oh, okay, what's the context? No. God, so God's talking here to Joshua. Uh, how much land was being given to Joshua? Yeah, quite a bit. So there's various uh, boundaries that are laid out. Some of this is not very easy for us to discern. But this is the same basic land area that was promised to Abraham, right? And so this promise is being reiterated uh, to Joshua. And what promises did God make to the children of Israel in verse 5? What do we see in verse 5? Okay, good. Nobody's going to be able to stand before you. Yep, I'll be with you. We'll be a third one. And I will not forsake you. So no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. I mean, just imagine for the sake of argument that you're on, you know, we'll use some sort of less serious analogy you know you're playing on a football team you join a football team freshman year of college you get some your coach gets direct divine revelation from god almighty and he says for the next four years no team shall be able to stand before you you will win all of your games that'd be pretty cool wouldn't it you're like wow all right um but you know joshua and and they're knowing they're walking in knowing that god is giving them the land yeah he is giving them the victory over their enemies we'll come back to this question in a little bit let me i'll raise the question we won't answer it um if god is promising them that they're going to have victory um is there anything that they have to do to go out and attain the victory right yeah, so God is giving them commands. He's saying, be strong, be very courageous, meditate on the law. Um, and so we're going to again see this concept in the book of Joshua of divine decree and human responsibility. That God's saying, hey, the victory's yours. It's already been established. Nobody's going to be able to stand against you. Therefore, meditate on the word of the Lord day and night. <clears throat> be strong, be very courageous. And the Bible's very comfortable with these promises and commands. Divine compatibility, that God is in control of all things, yet human beings are responsible. Um, and so let's look at those commands. Uh, so we see basically three different, there's a repeat of a command or a you know, basic phrase in verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 9. Um, what command did God repeat three times? Be strong and very courageous. So three different times he's saying, be strong, courageous, be strong, courageous. Um, We see some other commands here. To not turn from the commandments to the left or to the right. To meditate constantly on the book of the law. Um, Let's see, what else? Uh, that Joshua would prosper. Let's look again back at verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all of the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn to the right or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. So there's this promise that Joshua and the people are going to prosper as they come into the land. So uh, trust the Lord, obey the Lord, be strong, courageous, you're going to prosper. So let's let's make some deductions here. Um, let's see. Let me ask you guys this. What does it really mean to meditate upon the law of God? Say it again. Okay, so focus. So focus on it. Can I just take like maybe a, a, fa- a phrase that we see in the Bible? Let's say we see a phrase that says, uh, <clears throat> love the Lord your God. And do I just sit there and love the Lord your God? 
love the Lord your God, love the Lord your God, love the Lord your God, and just say that over and over and over again. Is that meditating? Is that what it means to meditate on the Word of God? Okay, so meditating can involve uh, of trying to assemble and, and really think through the scriptural connections. Yeah, good. Larry? Okay, so good. So meditation can involve, we look and we're seeing the word and you're thinking through how, how God, how do you want this reflected in my life? How should this be applied in my life right now? Good, what else? Excellent. So right there in the context, it gives us some clues about what meditation is. And part of that is not letting it depart from our mouth, which means that the word of God is always on our lips. Right. To say don't let it depart from your mouth is basically say don't stop talking about it. You know, sometimes <clears throat> you, 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 you'll pick up on somebody's hobby horse. Right. You just poke them a little bit in a certain area and all of a sudden they want to start talking. They'll just keep talking about that particular topic. Right. You find somebody in our. Yeah. Right, and actually, that's that's part of the literal idea is the chewing. The act, the some people they suggest some Hebrew scholars that the word behind the word meditate, it actually means like it's got this. What do they call it? Onomatopoeia. It sounds like the thing it's describing. So it's like this. The word kind of has this chewing sound to it, and so to meditate is really to kind of chew on it and mull it over really get all the nutrients and juices out of the word that yeah it's a good point um so yeah so we're we're really trying to milk the word for what it means look for its applications um that it's not departing from our mouth so that means that we're just we're talking about the word a lot so in whatever context whether it's with friends or family we just find ourselves Wanting to talk about the Lord, wanting to talk about his commands. Um, if you poke us, it, you know, it's like Spurgeon says, if you poke, uh, you poke me, I'm going to bleed bleeding. Gonna, I'm going to bleed Bible. Right. <clears throat> and um, and so that's part of and that's a choice. It's, it, there's both a promise here that God is making to Joshua, but also there's these choices that we're making that meditation of God's word is going to be something that we're making a high priority. Um, and you guys know this. You, you, you talk to somebody who's got a, a new crush or something, and, um, and you just poke them a little bit. What are they talking about? Talking about that guy, that girl, <clears throat> right? Um, or if all of a sudden, you know, something's going on politically and they're big time into Trump, you poke them a little bit. And there they are. They're ready to talk about it, right? Um, so that's that's the way that God is commanding Joshua to be with with the Bible, <clears throat> with His Word. Let's uh, let's make a couple other deductions before we look at the other passage. So let me ask you this: Joshua is being told that if he if he is strong and courageous and he observes the law of the Lord not to turn left or to the right, then he will prosper wherever he goes. Um, so can we apply this? Do you think we can apply this directly with the fullest extent? If Mike Berry meditates on the Bible, if I try to not depart from the left or to the right, is God going to prosper me in everything I put my hand to? Is this a command that, a promise that no matter what I put my hand to, as long as I'm being strong and courageous and that I'm, I'm going to prosper? You would say no? Why not? Say it again. Everything? You don't think I'm going to prosper in everything? What's wrong? Don't you believe in me? You don't believe me, Brian. <coughs> what do you guys think? So let's stick with the yeah, yeah, sir. 
Okay, good. Okay. Okay, great. Yeah, let's turn to Psalm 1. That's a very good connection. So Sarah's making this connection to, to Psalm 1, and um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that, in the, at least in the Joshua context, if I do what Joshua does, then every time I get in the boxing ring, I'm going to defeat my enemies. If I play a baseball game, we're going to win all of our games. Um, everybody's going to like me. Nobody's going to hate me. Um but there's, yeah, there's a very similar context here <clears throat> that seems to be delivered to the people of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the godly, nor stands the path of sinners, sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates in it day and night. He shall be what? Like this tree planted by rivers. It's going to bring forth fruit. And whatever he does shall prosper. So as long as, if we have the idea of what, what does it mean for the people of God generally to prosper, there does seem to be a promise here that if, if my thoughts and my priorities align with God's thoughts and God's priorities, then I can expect a prospering in the biblical sense, right? And so to prosper, it seems to me, in the broader biblical sense, would be that I'm growing in my glorification of God. I'm, I'm growing in my understanding of the creator-creature distinction, my relationship with the Lord, finding my happiness in eternal things, and so on and so forth, taking joy in the things that God provides for me physically. Um, but we would argue from this passage and other passages that that doesn't necessarily mean I'm not going to get sick. doesn't mean I'm not going to have tragedy. Um, but there does seem to be a generic principle that <clears throat> if I'm if I'm coming into this these blessings that God has for me via His Word, that there's going to be life consequences for me, right? And if I if I come outside of the umbrella of His Word, uh, there will also be consequences to that. The difference in the Joshua context, though, seems to be. Joshua is being commanded as a prophet to go lead the, the only people of God on the earth at that time to go and actually execute God's judgment on a wicked people. We're going to talk about that in a moment and to be a primary in the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant at that point, redemptive history. And so there does seem to be a promise for Joshua that when you put your hand to the sword and you go into battle, you are going to prosper. And so there seems to be, you can correct me if you guys think I'm wrong, there seems to be kind of maybe a, a generic principle that we could apply to all of us generally, especially when we look at other contexts like Psalm 1 and other places. But then there's a specific principle that's given to Joshua himself that we can't necessarily claim for ourselves. Because I'm not Joshua. I'm not the prophet Joshua. God didn't command me to take the people of Israel into Canaan and go into battle. But he did command Joshua to do that. And so I, I do have to draw a line between myself and, say, a person in redemptive history that's called to be a prophet. And so I but I do think that we can we can learn lessons that when God makes these kind of promises in a prophetic form on the page of Scripture to people in, in history, that God fulfills those promises. And we do see that as Joshua goes into battle the same kind of crazy, miraculous support that God was giving the people of Israel is now being applied to Joshua. We'll, we'll look at Jericho in a few weeks. There's just scientifically, there's no, it's just a crazy story. It just doesn't seem like that should be possible. But God comes in and he's the one that is fighting these battles. And so it gives us, it gives us great hope as the people of God that when God's making these kind of promises, like when the Bible says, to the church at large, the gates of hell shall not prevail. We can look to passages like this and see how God treated Joshua at this time and realize the church will also not fail in our time. Right. We're not going to come to a place where all of a sudden the church is demolished from the earth because Christ has promised that would never happen. Does that make sense? So does that mean that you can't you know, put Joshua 1, 8, and 9 on a t-shirt and claim it for yourself. No, I think if you understand the basic principle, 
that there's ways in which it applies to us and there's other ways in which it wouldn't. <clears throat> when my son was playing baseball when he was younger, he got plunked a couple times, got a little hesitant in the box. And with his undershirt, we like wrote on Joshua, the whole text of Joshua 1, 8, and 9. <clears throat> and that was pretty encouraging until he started to use it as a, uh, what do you call it? Like a good luck charm or it, it almost became one of his superstitions. He was like, oh, I can't find my shirt. I can't find, where's my shirt? Oh, I'm going to have a terrible game today. It's like, no, no, that's not the point. <laughs> the point is it's, it's not a, it's, it's not a uh, lucky rabbit's foot, right? It's just what's on that shirt. That's what matters. Think about that, you know. Yeah, Allison. Totally. Totally. Awesome. Yeah, so Allison's just reminds us of the Abrahamic covenant that God's, he's already made this promise. And so God's going to be faithful to the promise and he's bringing Joshua in to help fulfill that promise. That's great. Yeah, so Abraham and Yeah, Alvin. Oh, good. Yeah, I like that. Right. Right. That's a good point. Yeah, so Alvin is just pointing out that Joshua, this is really kind of his burning bush experience, like that Moses uh, experienced back in Exodus 3. And so we wouldn't apply the burning bush directly to ourselves, although we could see God's stuff about God's name and faithfulness in that context. Same thing here. There's certain aspects of it that would apply to us because God is God. But there's other aspects in which this is Joshua interfacing with God in that kind of burning bush type of way. So that's that's good. I like that. <clears throat> Let me um, raise another thorny issue before we turn to Matthew, and that is this. Um, you know, the question gets raised. Why, you know, Christians are supposed to be worshiping this loving God and, you know, we we serve Jesus, who's supposed to be this loving guy. And here's God promising to be with Joshua as his nation takes up arms and goes into a land to do battle and war and just annihilate other people groups. Um, And so what kind of God is this that is commanding one people to go in and annihilate another people? And um, what's to say that Christians won't do the same. Will is is the church have the same mission? Will people in the church rise up and start doing battle <clears throat> with people of other faiths? And would God say, "Hey, I'm going to be with you as you battle these people"? Uh, what do we say to the fact that in church history, some people did view themselves as taking on the same role as Joshua and the people? There were. Um, some of the crusade language during the crusades was, hey, God has delivered them into our hands. And just like Joshua won their battles, we're going in to battle for the Lord. Um, even kind of the whole concept in our history in the United States of manifest destiny, if you guys have studied those concepts, there was this feeling of God has delivered this whole land into our hands and we can just move across the continent because it's manifest destiny. Um, What do we do with that? Yeah, Nate.
Okay. <clears throat> well, isn't the United States God's people? It's not? Okay. Well, you guys just blew me away right there. <clears throat> you know, um, in the history of Russia, Russia had a very strong sense you know, they, you know, being Eastern Orthodox, growing up with uh, Peter as their patron saint in Eastern Orthodoxy. But their sense, you know, we're talking about eight, 1700s, 1800s, leading into the 20th century, was we are God's people. A very heavy sense of patriotism, but not, not just that, but we are the people of God. Um and and then in the United States, there has been different periods in our history where we have identified ourselves as Israel and we are God's people. Let me just point out. Um, let me I'm just going to um, throw these particular verses out and then you guys can look them up on your own in the Gospels. Do you guys remember uh, when Jesus was with his disciples and there becomes a point in which. Jesus says, somebody, if you previously you did not have a sword, now I want you guys to go get a sword. And um, oh, my early onset Alzheimer's is kicking in again. Um, say it again. Yeah, sell your cloak and go buy a sword, right? Okay, well, hold on, hold on. Don't go there. He, he tells them to go get swords. Who, who, who tells the disciples to get swords? Jesus does. Peter comes running up and he says, here's, here's two swords. Is this enough? Jesus says, yeah, that's enough. So Jesus commands them to go get swords. And then when they come get them, he's like, he commends Peter and says, that's enough. Then when they come to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and these this narrative, you have to assemble two different gospels to, to get this. But um, they come to arrest Jesus. And who cuts off the ear of the soldier? Peter. Then Jesus turns to Peter and says, put away your sword. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. If I'm Peter, I'm like, Lord, you just commanded me to go get a sword. You said we're going to need swords now. I used the sword you told me to get. And now you're telling me to put it away. So what's going on, Lord? Are you, did you not get enough sleep last night or what's going on? And um, I really, when we look at the New Testament context and kind of the way things are developing in Christ's life, remember when Peter, when Jesus is having this interview with Pilate, uh, Pilate says, are you the king? And he says, I am. And if my kingdom were of this earth, my servants would rise up and fight. But my kingdom is not of this earth, right? And so Jesus right here is setting up a paradigm the, the, his disciples were fully expecting the Messiah to come and have a civil war, a physical battle against the Romans and to deliver them from the Romans and to establish the kingdom on earth. Jesus comes along and starts saying things to the disciples that are like just not computing. Remember, Peter takes them aside and rebukes them and says, no, this isn't going to happen to you, Lord. And then Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. And so Jesus is just breaking up this paradigm. That doesn't mean that the Old Testament paradigm was wrong. It's now new. We're moving into a new covenant. We're looking, moving into a very new period of the history of redemption. <clears throat> and so I really think that the reason that Jesus told Peter to go get the swords is to teach him an object lesson. Go get these swords. He knew that Peter was going to use the sword. Again, this is the crazy creator-creature distinction stuff. You know, <clears throat> Peter uses the sword. Jesus rebukes him as the, the one who's going to be the main pastor of the starting church and says, don't, you're not going to live by the sword anymore. We did that back with national Israel. This is a new thing. This kingdom is a spiritual kingdom and we're not doing warfare, at least at this point. Now we do know that when Jesus comes back in his second advent upon the white horse, he is going to come as a warrior, Right. And he will whip up on his enemies. There will be warfare again. But in this period that we're in, this, this dispensation called the church, <clears throat> we are commanded to not take up the sword. And so what happens when Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit falls, and then persecution begins to rain down on the church. Guess what? They're not taking up arms. 
to fight the Romans, uh, they're either running for the hills like they do in the dispersion, or they're willing to receive persecution and be persecuted for righteousness sake. Um, so when it comes to the gospel ministry, when it comes to the church's ministry, we're living in a very different era. The church really should have never taken up arms for church purposes in the in this time of uh, of, of of redemptive history. So what happened with post Constantine era, the Holy Roman Catholic Church, and popes commanding armies and things like that? In my view, and just you know, a lot of people's, I'm not saying this in isolation, but um, is the church was never meant to take up arms in this dispensation. We were meant to lay down arms. Now, that, now, yeah, Barbara. Yes. No. Totally. Right. Yeah, totally. <clears throat> yeah, so Barbara's just reminding us it's not like the Canaanites and the, you know, the Hittites and these people that are being attacked where some angelic people, like the noble savage concept that's become very popular in our culture, <clears throat> no, um, these people were burning their children. Think of the Aztecs times 10. <clears throat> these people were burning their kids to their false gods, this abject immortal, uh, immorality. And just look at the history of, of, of redemption up to that point. It's like God was very, very, very patient and then the world was so filled with blood and violence that he floods the whole world, right? Um, and this happened several different times. He's very patient with Sodom and Gomorrah. God, Abraham pleads for Sodom and Gomorrah, or pleads for Lot. God does deliver Lot, but then he rains down fire and brimstone. And so in this point of redemptive history, uh, he, in Deuteronomy and other places, I think actually we can turn to Deuteronomy 18 if you would. Uh, we'll hit this in a second. Uh, I think it's Deuteronomy 18, 19. Let me get the exact verse for you. Yeah, Deuteronomy 18, 9. We'll read this in just a sec. <clears throat> but at this point, redemptive history, God has ra risen up or raised Israel for several different purposes, but one of the purposes he's raised them up is to execute his own judgment through them. Not because they are righteous people. He said that many times. But he is bringing them into lands to do just what he did with Sodom and Gomorrah through fire, just what he did through waters and flood. He did that. And he is raising them up to bring warfare upon a wicked, wicked people. And God... You know, we might not like that. We not, might not be comfortable with that. But he has the prerogative to do that. So as we understand the creator-creature distinction, God can raise up kings and lower kings. And he has risen up Israel for just such a time to come in and execute his judgment upon a very wicked people. And so if you look at 18.9, <clears throat> when you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. Uh, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, and one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. This is, this is what's going on in this area of the world. Um, <clears throat> we're talking about sorcery. We're talking about witchcraft. We're talking about putting their own children. We're talking about full-on demon-controlled areas. And from God, you know, God who is God looks upon this area and he says their cup is full and there is no redemption value. We've seen the history in the past that if there was someone that could be saved, he saved Noah and his family. If there was someone that could be saved, he saved Lot and his family. From God's perspective, there's no one in this area that can be saved. 
He's bringing judgment from Israel to wipe them out because this is a wicked, wicked area. And that does not give you know, us the prerogative to take up the sword and say, oh, we're the new Israel. We'll go wipe out some other. It doesn't mean that <clears throat> there aren't in God's decree and sovereignty other wars that happen that God, I think, has been with us in our past, i.e. World War II and so on. But it's just we're not Israel. We don't we don't have that same command to go out. Hey, we're going to execute God's judgment because he's given us divine revelation to go out and do so. I think Jennifer had something or. Great. Yes, that's a fantastic question. So the question is, are we therefore called to just lay down our arms or should we be willing to fight as individuals? It's an excellent question. What I'm talking about is the role of the church. And there is a difference between church and state and even church and individual. And so like as a church, Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Church, we're not called to take up arms and go to battle against the Islamicist in our neighborhood, right? We're not called, you know, if Pastor Milton stands up here one Sunday and says, we're raising a militia, there's a lot more Mormons that are moving into town. And we'd like to get all those militia going so we can go kill all the Mormons. You run away and go to another church and call the police, right? That's not what the church is called to do. But now you start talking about what is the state called to do. You have to look at different passages of scripture like Romans 13. Um, The state is called to bear the sword so that evildoers would have fear and to reward good. Then there's also what are you called to do as an individual person? You know, when Jesus says, if somebody slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other cheek. I personally, it, it depends on the context. I interpret that largely within a gospel community setting. Like if somebody's coming and persecuting me for my faith, I ve- may very well just turn my cheek and, le- and let them slap me on the other cheek. I'm not going to like try to defend myself as a Christian. Um, what I don't think that means is that he's saying, hey, all fathers, let anybody just break into your house and rape your wife and take your kids. Or go ahead and just let anybody babysit your kids regardless of background. You know, yeah, I know there's a lot of people that are in our community here with Megan's Law. I'm going to let them all watch my kids. No, that's silly. We're called as individuals to protect ourselves, protect our families. And I think I think something like what Abraham did <clears throat> with Abraham in that setting it, that we talked about this last week in Genesis 14 you're you're li- you're looking at a period of history where Abraham clearly was not commanded as the leader of Israel to go wipe out a group for judgment's sake, right? This was just Abraham living in a city state or kind of more of a village type of economy. There's no such thing as nations at that point. There's no police force, there's no standing army. And so a lot of people have talked about the time that Abraham was living in there in Genesis 14 would be very akin to Native Americans here in North America uh, around the 17, 1800s. That if you were part of the Cherokee Nation and your nation, you want to make sure that your tribes are protected, guess what? All of your young men are learning how to fight. They're riding horses. They're learning how to shoot uh, bows and arrows because you know sooner or later you're going to get attacked. Right? It's just going to happen. And so you've got to be able to protect yourself, protect your property, protect your families. And so it does seem like, uh, in, my, in my view, um, a Christian individual would have the right to protect himself and his family. But we would not necessarily wage war on behalf of the church. And we may not resist persecution from those that come to get us because we're Christians. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I think it happened at the time of Christ, once we move into the new covenant. So Jesus Christ, again, you know, he says to Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would rise up and fight. 
As soon as Jesus says that, he's telling everybody, we're in a new era. Because that's not the way it worked in Israel, right? In Israel, if something was happening, right? If, if, if Israel was walking in righteousness before the Lord, God would command them to go out and execute judgment. Or if they were attacked, God would say, I will be with you. And he would even sometimes direct them on the field of battle. Remember, sometimes David would ask the Lord, what should I do? If I go on a frontal attack, are they going to, is this going to work out? And the Lord says, no, don't do that. Go around the side. And so the Lord's actually helping David through direct divine revelation with his attack plan. Or remember that one time, we'll probably hit this later, where David says, if I go into this area, if I go to the, I think it's the Philistines, no, yeah, the Philistines, are they going to deliver me into Saul's hands? And he says, yes, they will deliver you. And so then David says, okay, I won't go there. (laughs) And so God, that's very interesting because God is telling him what would happen if he went there, which was never in God's divine decree because it never happened. Ooh, Doctor Who. It's like, ah. <coughs> um, so anyway, so, so anyway, I just think it's a, it's a very important topic for us to get our minds around because it becomes an apologetics topic. You're, you're sharing the gospel with your friends or family. If they've done, watched a little bit of the History Channel or they've been thinking about some of this stuff, they'll be like, oh, yeah, your God's so great. He sends all these you know, people are to go kill everybody there in Canaan or, you know, whatever. And then you guys have the crusades and you're killing everybody during the crusades. So what we say is we go, yes, on the first part. And here's why you might not agree, but here's why no on the crusades, right? We don't affirm the crusades necessarily. We don't affirm some of the things that were happening in the name of the church. um, Since Christ basically said, we don't live by the sword as a church. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. The problem of evil. Yeah. Yep. And that's a whole nother. That kind of, again, I think gets into the some of the mysteries of where the Bible says God is revealed certain things to us and our children that we may obey them but the secret things belong to the lord there's things about the problem of evil that is hard for us to understand but we're not you know we're just not god you know you know if if god is all powerful and if god is all good then why does he allow any evil and john piper's answer is he has allowed evil and divine his decrees because it will glorify him this is the best of all possible worlds for god's glory you may not like that but God gets glory from one lump of clay and from another lump of clay. And there's things that just happen in our world. You know, just look at some of the stories of, you know, even just salvation stories where something we've got a gal in our church who <clears throat> went through some tragic, tragic stuff. She was part of sex trafficking down in South America and got brought up to the United States with some person that she couldn't care less about. And then came into contact with the gospel and got saved. And so she got saved through the process of being transferred through sex trafficking. And you would never want that to happen to somebody. And, and, um, but that's how she came into contact with the gospel. And now she's just like, I'm so glad the Lord brought me up here to the United States. Otherwise, I would have never heard the gospel. <clears throat> how do you explain that? You know, it's just terrible tragedy but god you turns tragedy into salvation um it's just amazing uh let's end on this we'll have to we'll have to close is is god by the way god isn't just in the business of using israel to execute judgment on wicked peoples but we're as we're going to see when israel falls into wickedness then god also he brings other nations down on them and so when we get to judges, we're going to see these cycles of judgment. And one of the big mysteries is, you know, Israel goes through that big civil war. 
you know, the northern tribes get taken out by Assyria. You got the southern tribes that are falling into sin and all kinds of immorality. God says, you guys better repent. Or I'm going to bring down judgment upon you. They don't repent. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes down, Babylon, from uh, through the hand of God. This is a pagan king that God brings down into sovereignty to carry Israel, or Judah into captivity. And... Um, <clears throat> Read, you know what, you want a mind blower sometime, do some study in the book of Habakkuk and, and it will just fry your brain. Because <clears throat> what is Habakkuk's problem? Habakkuk is looking at, at uh, Israel, Judah. I think it's, he's focused on Judah there. And he's like, Lord, your people are so wicked. They're despising your name. Why are you doing nothing? And then the Lord says, well, I am going to do something. I'm going to bring Babylon down to bring judgment upon my people. And then he's like, wait a second. Babylon is a pagan nation led by this pagan king. They're more wicked than Israel. Then God says, well, don't worry. After Babylon comes down, and this is paraphrasing, and whips up on Israel, I'm going to bring somebody down to whip up on Babylon. And he's like, what are you talking about? And and then at the end of the book is that real famous passage where Habakkuk just says, though the deer can give birth to no more babies and though the land may be barren and we can produce no more flocks and everything's fallen apart in our lives, we will yet praise the Lord and shut our mouths. And he just basically says, you are God, we are not, I cannot comprehend this. And so you see again this creator-creature distinction that God has divine prerogatives that he can righteously carry out that we could never carry out or we would be mafia bosses. If we tried to do what God does, you would call me Mussolini, right? But God is able righteously to keep all of these plates turning in intention to accomplish all of his righteous purposes, And it's only a God like our God that could possibly do that. How do you explain? I've mentioned, you know, one of my favorite characters in history, in World War II history, Mitsuo Fuchida. How do you explain Mitsuo Fuchida planning for months the attack of Pearl Harbor? He's the lead pilot. He goes and they bomb Pearl Harbor. They kill, what was it, 2,300 people. December 7th here just recently. Goes back home, they get defeated, <clears throat> and he comes upon the track of somebody gives him a track that was written by one of Doolittle's raiders who had hated Japanese people but then came to know Christ. And then before you know it, Mitsuo Fuchida gets saved in Japan and he's running around preaching the gospel. And in the 1950s, shows up in Pearl Harbor and basically apologizes for Pearl Harbor and says, I've now become a Christian. Would you please forgive me? I'd like all of you to receive Christ. How do you, how do you explain stuff like that? You know, other than just God's just moving things around in amazing ways and, and creating all these incredible, when we're in heaven and we're able to see all of this from his perspective, we will just marvel at God's wisdom and, as he's as he's moved uh, history along for his glory let's go ahead and pray i'll I'll be up here for a little bit if you want to talk more uh lord we thank you so much for just what we see from the life of just this little snippet of the life of joshua getting kicked off with his burning bush experience and um, we thank you lord for just the promises that we see on the page of scripture we thank you lord for um, your control your sovereignty Thank you for how your word feeds us. We ask, Lord, that you just feed us this morning as we continue in the book of Genesis, as Pastor Milton preaches. Uh, thank you, Lord, for um, just uh, your marvelous sovereignty and control over all events. I know there's been much uh, much sickness and there's been tragedy this week with this gal that was hit by a car over by CBU. And um, we just pray, Father, that you'd have your hand upon her body. And grace and uh, we pray lord that you would help us to see your hand in all of the intimate details of our lives and uh, we don't always understand it um, but we can <clears throat> trust you uh, in christ's name we pray amen <clears throat>